I hope you meant what you were singing when you sang, knowing you, Jesus, there is no greater thing. And, um, you know, we come to this part of the service where we open the word and, and um, just look at the truth in it. And if, if we go through the next 30, 40 minutes and we don't see Christ in his word, then somehow I've probably failed. But it's also something that the Holy Spirit does in revealing Christ to us in his word. And so we need his help. That's why we pray. So would you pray with me this morning? So Lord, this morning as we sang um, this song, Knowing You, Lord, my mind just goes to John 16 where you, you told your disciples um, that when the Spirit comes that he, would, that he would speak of you. So Holy Spirit, would you speak to our hearts of Jesus this morning? Would you open our eyes to the, to the glories of, of who he is, to specifically as we're in this text, to his unchangeable nature? So, so Lord, um, do in us what only you can do for the sake of your holy name and uh, open our eyes to the truths of your word. And then, Lord, help us to be doers of the word, not just hearers. Help us not to just gain more head knowledge, um, but to understand how you want us to personally apply it to our own lives. Um, God, it's a tall order. Um, it's a tall task. Um, so we come to you as the one who is all-sufficient and all-knowing and all-powerful. And we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you're new here this morning, uh, my name is Floyd. I do the majority of the teaching here, and, um, and we are in the book of Hebrews, and I welcome you here. Um, welcome all of you, not just new faces. I'm just grateful for every one of you. We're in Hebrews chapter 6, in the last little section of verses there, there's about seven verses there that we want to look at this morning for our text. Um, if you were here last Sunday, the context for this passage is that it's almost like he paused in his discussion of Jesus as the great high priest, and he says, I need to just say this. It's like I need to get something off my chest here a little bit. And he begins to talk to them about their need for growing in their faith, the need for maturing. He talks about getting skilled in the word of righteousness. And... Um, and then he ends with a word of encouragement, and he says, I believe that something better for you. I believe that this is not going to be the case for you where you would go through your life and your walk with Jesus not growing, and there's a word of encouragement here, and I appreciate that he ends with that word of encouragement. He says that he wants them to have this full assurance of hope until the end that there's like a, a steadiness. Now, I don't know how you would define Christian maturity, but I think that's a pretty good way to define it. Is someone who is steady, who is not sort of shaken by the events of their lives, when disappointments come, that it doesn't immediately send them spiraling into, well, is God even who he said he was, who he is? But that's kind of where we go at our worst, is as soon as an unexpected situation arises or a disappointment comes, it begins to shake our faith. 
And the writer of Hebrews is being very intentional in telling them, I want you to grow. He says, I believe you're going to grow and that you're going to continue maturing so that when the storms of life come, that you won't be shaken by them and that things won't mess you up. And it's in that tone that we go into this section of verses, and there's a connecting word in the beginning of verse 13. It just says, for. And so he's continuing the, the discussion. He's continuing the argument that he's just made in the previous verses, and he's continuing this thought of the necessity of having this full assurance of hope until the end, that you and I would come to the end of our lives with a faith that is stronger than it's ever been, that our confidence is more stable in Jesus than it's ever been. And so if you have your Bibles with you, you could turn to Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to pick it up in verse 13. And the writer of Hebrews says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the writer of Hebrews takes us, the reader, back to a, poor, a time in history. And if you would go, and I'm not going to ask you to turn there this morning for the sake of time, but if you would go back to Genesis chapter 22, there's a story there of God reaffirming his covenant with his servant Abraham. And God saying, and he refers to it in this text, God saying, by myself I swear that I will do this. And he says, I swear that I will give you a great nation, that from your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed, so there's a part of that that is for Abraham clearly, but that there's also this very forward-looking part of this covenant that God is making with Abraham, and he's envisioning and picturing a day when nations all around the world would be blessed because of the offspring of Abraham. And we know now that he was re referencing Jesus as the offspring, offspring of Abraham who would, in fact, reach the nations of the world for the gospel. And it's a fascinating covenant that God makes with Abraham. I mean, he's envisioning all the way down through history to today, where you and I are the recipients of the fulfillment of this covenant that God made with Abraham, those of us who are in Christ. What's really interesting to me is the setting that that covenant was made in. See, there are several times that God made covenants with Abraham. This one was unique. And it's interesting to me that the writer of the Hebrews goes back to Genesis 22 as the place for his argument that God's word is sure. 
And he goes back to that event because right before God made this covenant, do you know what was happening? Genesis 22 is the story of Abraham taking his son Isaac, who had been born by that time. So this is not pre-Isaac. This is after Isaac is born. Genesis 22 begins with God saying to Abraham, take your son, your only son, and take him up to the mountain and offer him as a sacrifice and kill him. And if you know the story, Abraham takes this little boy. I don't know how old he was, but he takes his son Isaac. This fulfillment of the promise that God had made to him. And don't you want to know what was going through the heart and mind of Abraham as he walked up the mountain? I hope someday to be able to meet Abraham in heaven and say, what was that day like? Where you walked up the mountain with the full intentions of taking the, the son of promise, the one where all his hopes and dreams was kind of resting on Isaac, because this was something very intimate between Abraham and God that God had miraculously given him a son when he was beyond the age of bearing a child. His wife was beyond the age of bearing a child. And here, here he is. And everything we read about Abraham's relationship with Isaac tells us that this was a very tender relationship, a good father-son relationship. Abraham loved his son Isaac. And there is no casualty or there's no cavalier attitude in Abraham's response to this, and yet we just read that he was obeying, and he just walks up the mountain with the full intentions of offering his son Isaac. And you know the story. He had him there. He raised his hand. He's ready to, he's ready to do the deed. Um, he's ready to actually kill his son. And the angel, in just the right moment, says, stop. And he stops. And then it says that God provided a ram that was caught in the thicket. It says that after that, Abraham named that mountain God provides, the mountain where God provides. And it's in that context that God comes to Abraham and he says, I swear by myself that I will keep my promise and that I will fulfill the promise he had made earlier to Abraham, that he will bless the nations through Abraham's offspring. The writer of Hebrews goes back into that context, and he begins with that story. And he says, let's take our thoughts and imagination back there. And imagine what it must have been like for Abraham in that moment. And if you have ever gone through a season or a time in your life where it looked by all, by all practical appearances as though God was not keeping his word. You might know a little bit of what Abraham felt. If you've ever been in a situation where you prayed desperately for something and it went the other direction, you might know a little bit of what Abraham felt like. If you ever really thought your life was headed in a particular direction and then without explanation, God took it in another you might know a little bit of what Abraham felt like. And the fact that God meets him in that moment in such a powerful way, and he covenants and promises to Abraham, not just that Isaac would live, but that Isaac would live and have children, and they'd have children, and they'd have children, and that one day, one would rise out of the generation of Abraham, 
that we know him to be Jesus Christ, and that he would save the nations from their sins. And that is the fulfillment that is ongoing and continues to go on for us. And the writer of Hebrews goes back to that part because I think the writer of Hebrews knows that most of us who read these words can identify at least a little bit with Abraham at some point. Probably not to that degree, but most of us have had those moments where we've wondered if God really keeps his word. Does God really, can he really be trusted? Can I trust him even though it looks like everything is going wrong? Can I trust him regardless of the results? And the writer of Hebrews is making the argument that you can, in fact. If you look at this text, he uses this term in verse 18 that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. And I think it would automatically bring up the question, what are those two unchangeable things that he's referencing here? And you would need to go back and basically just read the previous verses that he's referencing in order to answer that question. Those two unchangeable things are, first of all, the immutable nature of God. It's his unchanging nature. I intentionally use the word immutable, and here's why. Now, those of you who might be carrying a King James Version Bible, you are feeling very vindicated right now because you're like, yes, he's using the right word. Um, we use the word unchangeable to reference things that are actually changeable. Like if you have a sibling that's stubborn, you say they never change, always been like this. Or if in your lifetime you, you know a particular building to have never been changed in its decoration. You're like, it's unchanging. It never changes. Well, that's not actually completely accurate. And it's certainly not the idea of the word immutable. Because when the writer of Hebrews is referencing in other places in Scripture where it's referencing the nature of God as being unchanging, it's not like we think of unchanging in things that seem like they don't change. But see, we have such a narrow frame of reference. At best, we have from birth to death. And we might experience things that don't change from, birth to, to, from our birth to our death, but they're still changing. But the writer of Hebrews is arguing that this God is not like those things. He is immutable. He is unchanging. And he is not only unchanging as God, he is unchanging in his nature. His nature doesn't change. It is a mistake to read the events of the Old Testament, the ways that God interacted with his children in the Old Testament, and think that he somehow grew up by the time he got to the New Testament. His nature actually didn't change. There are ways, and you see it in the very first verses of the book of Hebrews, there are various ways that God has dealt with his children throughout history, but his nature is unchanging. His wrath is every bit as much real and a part of his character and nature as it was then. His holiness has not diminished or increased. It simply is. His love has not diminished or increased. It simply is. He is love. And his immutability, his unchangingness, 
is key to the nature of God, and it's important to the argument that the writer of Hebrews is making here. The second unchangeable thing is the immutable promises of God, and that's the argument that he's making in these previous verses is that when God makes a promise and when he says, I'm going to do it, he's going to do it. It's unshakable. And he uses this example of God swearing an oath by Abraham. Like he's re-emphasizing to Abraham because there's nothing greater than God to swear by, so he swears by himself. And he says, and, and it's this idea of I'm going to borrow from something that you know to be unchanging and apply the strength of that to what I'm saying currently, right now. And God does that. And, he's a, and he applies what Abraham already knows about him as Jehovah God. And he says, that's how steady and unchanging this promise is to you, Abraham. And the writer of Hebrews is saying the promises are still unchangeable. Now, I think this is probably something that should go, that could be left unsaid, but I want to just take a few seconds and say it. The promises of God are still unchanging. The promises that we put in God's mouth are not necessarily unchanging. In other words, if I say, well, I believe that God has promised me that he will, in fact, get me out of debt or, you know, fill in the blank or something more serious, I believe that he's going to heal my cancer. I don't find that specific of a promise made in his word, and it can actually be dangerous to put words in God's mouth, apply them as immutable promises. And I've seen people's faith get really shaken by doing that. Does God promise to heal? He actually does. He does promise that one day we will be released from these bodies and that we will experience a healing that is complete and final and without any change. Does he promise that everybody's temporary bodies will experience healings. No, he actually doesn't. Does he heal us? Yes, he does sometimes. We pray for healing. But it is probably important to note that the promises of God are unchangeable. The whims of men are always changing. That's why we don't put faith in them. The things that we want God to do and may even try to somehow convince ourselves that he's promised to do are not necessarily immutable. But the things he said clearly, they certainly are. And they are without fail and without change. So on those two unchangeable things, the writer of Hebrews goes on to make this argument in the second half of chapter 8, or verse 18, where he talks about this holding fast to the hope that is set before us. And, he's tell, and he uses this term to grab a hold of this hope. This sure hope. But he's saying hold fast to it. The 
the call, the encouragement. In fact, he even uses this term, strong encouragement, to hold fast, is based on those two unchangeable things. That's why he structures it the way that he does, is that he doesn't just kind of roll in and say, hang on to the hope that God has given you. That'd be true. But he wants you and I to understand, the reader to understand, that this call, this strong encouragement to use his language to hold fast is based on the character of who God is, the unchanging, the immutable nature of the promises of God. He goes on and he says that we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul in verse 19. So he's not only saying we're holding fast to the hope that is set before us, he says we have a sure and a steadfast, and I love the adjectives there, the anchor of the soul. That part, that inner part of us that can get sort of swayed at times by the events and the circumstances of life. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, look at the majesty of who our God is. Look at the unchanging character of his nature. And then he says, and hang on to that and put your sure and steadfast anchor in that. You say, well, what does that look like? Well, it looks like not anchoring in a lot of other things. And if you are like I am, we do have those Abraham moments where we're there at a place we didn't expect to be, going through something we didn't expect to go through, and wondering, is God really who he said he was? Can he keep his promises? Will he keep his promises. If you're in a moment where you know you've disappointed God greatly, a sin that you really didn't think you'd commit, or maybe one of those that just keeps dogging you, and then you come across a promise like 1 John 1, 8 and 9, where he says, if you will confess your sins, He's faithful, he's just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Like, oh man, that's a good promise. I don't know if it applies to me. You know the sureness of the promises of God apply to that promise too? That regardless of the worst of my moments, the worst of the decisions, the sins that I'm embarrassed about, the promise of God that if we will confess our sins, that he is faithful, he is just, he will forgive, and he will cleanse. And whether you feel it or I feel it doesn't change the unchanging nature of it, and the immutability of it. And so it's those kinds of promises that I think those first readers of Hebrews were probably struggling with, I think we struggle with sometimes. It's like we know it in our head, but have not really grabbed a hold of it and hang on to it as the anchor of the soul. And that stubborn insistence that I'm not going anywhere because where else would I go to borrow the words of Peter? Only Jesus has the words of life. You know, in the first 300 years 
of Christianity, the Christian church, the anchor was just as much of a Christian symbol as the cross was. In fact, they would often do something kind of, kind of like that where it was, a, it was an anchor with a cross. And, and the anchor was considered to be a Christian symbol. There's a number of ancient tombs you know, that they found that had these anchors inscribed in them in the catacombs in Rome, you know, places where Christians were hiding for their own safety because, because the government was hostile to their way of life and their faith. And there was times, there was places where Christians would hide in the catacombs. Sometimes they'd go to the catacombs and have church, and they find even to this day anchors, you know, scratched into the walls and inscribed there. What, what were these people saying? Like, what are they communicating to us, you know, almost 2,000 years later? These people who were the first generation or two of Jesus' followers anchor in the cross. Well, I hope I don't have to explain all that to you. It's fairly obvious, isn't it? That their hope was in the cross of Christ. That they had anchored themselves in that. And even in a time where they were suffering and things were going horribly wrong by all appearances. I mean, where is this victory that Jesus talked about? Where is this reign over the kings of the earth that they were reading about in their Bibles when the kings of the earth were actually tyrants and were destroying their lives? And yet, even in that context of not seeing all of the promises of God fulfilled in their lifetime, there was a hope that God was a God who would continue to fill his promises. And even if I don't see it in my lifetime, even if they didn't see it in their lifetime, that they would see one day with their own eyes a kingdom that could not be shaken and a kingdom in which the kings of the earth would bow down to the king of kings. Now, they lost the anchor, or they began to gradually lose the anchor in in um, around AD 300, you know, when Constantine came along and he suddenly had, supposedly had a vision that he would conquer under the sign of the cross, and, you know, so he put the cross everywhere, and he was marching his army through the river to baptize them into Christianity, and it's kind of, you know, crazy history stuff. Um, like, he baptized, it. I think this is interesting, you might not, he baptized his army by marching them through the river, but he told them to hold their sword hand out of the water because he didn't want to baptize that part of it. Um, <laughs> kind of funny. Um, maybe there's a connection between the sense of political power and the gradual loss of an anchor. Think about that. Like that sense of, I'm in charge here. Now we're the people in power. We're the people in charge. And this misplacement of hope. And gradually the anchor disappeared as a symbol of Christianity. And I think it kind of speaks to our day as well, doesn't it? This issue continues to confront us of where our hope lies, where our anchor is at, 
Because as you know, if you know anything about anchors and boats, and I do a little bit, you know that the anchor is doing no good as it's in the boat. In fact, if you're in 15 feet of water and you have a 14-foot rope, your anchor actually does you no good. You know why? Because it's not attached to anything. It's just hanging there. And the anchor is only as good as that to which it is anchored to. And when it is anchored to something that is immovable, and the anchor is immovable, then let the storms come. Let the wind blow. The boat's not moving. And our faith is that way. I think this is one of the reasons why it's possible for you and I to sit under the teaching of God's Word and have a 14-foot rope and a 15-foot water. It's like we know it, we know it, we know it. But there's like this absolute confidence and trust that we're not quite ready to just, Jesus, I trust you with all of it. My bank account, my marriage, my children, my relationships, all of it. I trust you with all of it. I think you can handle it better than I can. And it's as though this writer anticipates that we're going to think about anchors and we're going to think about, well, the anchor is only as good as what it's attached to because then he tells us what the anchor is attached to in the next words. He says that we have the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul in verse 19, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. And it's like, I thought we were talking about anchors. Now all of a sudden we're talking about the temple and this place that they called the inner place, the holy of holies, where the presence of God dwelt. And the writer is taking this idea of the anchor and he's saying, and this anchor is attached to the very presence and holiness of God in the inner place. And he says, and Jesus connects us. He has gone there, and he has offered for one time the perfect sacrifice. Now, if you went back into Leviticus, particularly Leviticus 16, you would see a very detailed description of what was supposed to happen on the Day of Atonement in the Holy of Holies. Like, you would see the bull, the ram, which I think is kind of interesting connecting to what we were talking about with Abraham, the ram in the thicket. There's more there than I have time to unpack. You would see the two goats, very specific things that were supposed to happen with the goats, with the bull, and so forth. But you would understand that something, there's a transition happening on that day of atonement as the high priest goes back into the holy of holies. And there's this very clear transition that is happening. The sins of the priests, the sins of the people are being placed on these goats and they're being offered. One's offered, one's sent away. Beautiful pictures of this, of this great and final high priest, Jesus, who would enter the very presence of God Offering the perfect sacrifice, fulfilling the bull, the ram, the goats, all in one person, in himself. 
And where is he now? He is in the very presence of God, continuing his priestly ministry, interceding for you and for I, for me. He is interceding for you and me. The question is, where is your anchor? I think if the writer of Hebrews was here, this seems to be what is paramount in his argument is make sure your anchor is attached to Jesus because he and he alone has gone into the Holy of Holies, the inner place. In my sermon in a sentence this morning, anchor your hope in Christ. I don't know for sure all of the many, many ways to apply this stuff in your life. Like this is, in some ways, this very almost abstract theological concept, right? Anchor your hope in Christ. And yet it's not abstract. It's actually very personal. Because the, the struggles, the difficulties of life are constantly coming at us. I mean, this week you're going to have things that will happen to you that you are gonna have to, you're going to have to make a choice. Do I stay with my commitment to trust Jesus or do I just go with what I feel and what it looks like? I've had seasons of time in my life. In fact, my wife and I were just talking about there's a season where we were early in our, in our marriage where we really, we really felt like God um, laid it on our hearts, like we had this personal sense of conviction about our tithing and our giving. And we, we committed ourselves to being you know, faithful in, in giving and in tithing. And man, all of a sudden we saw God blessing them. It was really cool. Like I could just sit here and tell stories. It was really cool. And then we went through this season where it seemed like we were being punished for that. Like, if something could break, it broke. And if something could be cheap or expensive, it was expensive. And that season literally went for years. Like, you know, probably around eight years. And I remember during that time, you know, I would hear people saying things like, well, you can't outgive God. I'd say horse feathers. I'm outgiving God all the time. And, and, and it was always in this context or in, in this notion of like, you just put five bucks in the offering or you put 500 to be better and you're just going to be amazed at what God will do. And I began to realize that God had already outgiven me and he was going to continue outgiving me and the grace that I had received would never actually be paid for in any context, either by my good works or by money in an offering or by anything I could do. I was not going to repay him. He had already outpaid. He had already outgiven me. So in a theological sense, yes, it's true. You can't outgive God. Can you mathematically enter into some kind of a mercenary relationship with God where you pay him a little and he pays you a lot back? No. Probably not. Um, it's cool when some of that stuff happens, but that's not really the relationship I want with God, actually. I don't actually want that kind of a relationship. What I want is a relationship with God where 
his character is not measured by how much money is in my bank account or how comfortable my life is or how good my health is. I don't want a relationship with God where he is constantly changing based on what I'm feeling over here. What I want is a relationship with God where I am grounded and anchored on who he is and what he has done and the promises that he has kept. And the things that are immutable, that are unchangeable, that will never, ever change regardless of what happens in my life, that's the kind of faith that I want. And that's the kind of faith that I pray for. And that's the kind of faith that I pray for you. So that where you're, whether you're raising kids, going to work, whatever you're doing, that Christ is your hope and your anchor. I have a few deeper study questions in closing. Amber, if you guys want to go ahead and come on up. And then um, also like to just include the prayer team, if you want to be ready to come up in a little bit. Because I do want to also continue to extend that invitation. There may be some things this morning that you personally just need to say, Lord, I think I've been putting my hope somewhere else. I think I've been trusting something else. And I, I just want to, in this moment, maybe you just want to slip up front and pray with somebody on the prayer team and just say, Lord, I want to just anchor my hope in you this morning. These deeper study questions, um, I, last week I, I asked you if these were actually helpful or not. I was overwhelmed by the response I got, so thank you for your response. By the time that I got a number of responses back, I felt like a better preacher than I am. And then I went to a preaching workshop for three days, and I felt like a worse preacher than I am. And so, you know, here I am a week later, and I'm about back to where I was. So, yeah, hopefully those are helpful for you. Would you stand with me? And there may be someone, maybe several of you just, just want to slip up front, and, and a prayer team of several of you would, would just join me up front. Um, there may be someone who just wants to slip up and just say, Lord, I anchor this situation. Maybe there's just something very specific. You just want to say, Lord, this situation, I anchor in who you are. Um, and I invite you, if you would like to just come, um, just, to, just to take a moment, share that with God. Lord, this morning, thank you for this reminder from your word that we have a sure and steady anchor. God, I'm grateful that we can trust you with whatever is going on in our lives. Lord, there are some here who have, who have questions about their finances. Lord, remind them that you are the sure and steady anchor. There's some here who are wrestling with issues with their children. God, help them to remember that you are the sure and steady anchor. God, there's those who are, who are struggling with health issues. Remind us that you are the sure and steady anchor. Lord, whatever it is, drill this into our hearts. As only you can. Thank you, and we love you. In Jesus' name.